So let's hear God's word from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, beginning with verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown round his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Amen. We'll end our reading there in verse 52 of Mark chapter 14. Let's ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we look to you as we come to such a solemn portion of your word, a portion that exposes the reality of the power of darkness, a portion that exposes the reality of the weakness of your disciples, of those who follow you, a portion that exposes the treachery that is present in the human heart. But Lord, we praise you also, a portion that reveals the steadfastness of Christ, his refusal to vary from his mission, however easy such a variance would have been, however difficult the mission was. We pray, Lord, that you would help us then to draw comfort from Christ in this passage. And we pray that the work of grace in our hearts would be that we would follow him more fully, preserve us from being like those who abandoned him and fled, and help us to instead be more like our Savior himself. In his name we pray these things. Amen. One of the challenges that we face as we come to these very familiar parts of the gospel story is the challenge of hearing the distinctive witness of this gospel. I'll give you an example of what I mean. Probably when I tell you that one of the disciples took a sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant, I would imagine that most people in this congregation know which disciple it was. It was Peter. But Mark doesn't say that. Mark doesn't give us that detail. Probably quite a few of you even know the name of the high priest's servant. It was Malchus. You find that out in the Gospel of John. But Peter doesn't tell us that. I'm confident that all of you know that Jesus healed the man's ear, that he restored it. But Mark doesn't tell us that. And so one of the challenges that we have is we're so familiar with these details that come from other sources, our mind automatically fills it in as we're reading through there, and we miss the distinctive, the unique impression that we would get if we were reading the Gospel of Mark without this familiarity, without this ongoing background awareness of details that arise from only other gospels. Now, Mark is distinctive in what he leaves out. He leaves out 
the name of the disciple. He leaves out the name of the servant. He leaves out the healing of the ear. He leaves out any words that Jesus may have spoken to Judas. In the other Gospels, you find that Jesus did speak to Judas. He said, friend, why have you come? Mark doesn't tell you that. And Mark is also distinctive in what he includes. None of the other Gospels have that odd little vignette of the young man who they grabbed his clothes, so he left them and ran away. No other Gospel has that. None of this is random. None of this is without a meaning. Traditionally, historically, we think that Mark's main source for his gospel was Peter. Do you think Peter forgot that he was the one who chopped off the ear? I doubt it. I mean, that seems like the sort of thing you would remember. So why doesn't Mark include that? Well, of course, Mark doesn't write an essay saying, well, I left this out and I included this because. So we're left to read the story, get the impression we get, and then in comparison and contrast with the other Gospels, highlight what purpose is served, what is emphasized or highlighted by what Mark leaves out as well as by what Mark includes. Well, I think a theme that sort of binds this way of telling about Jesus' arrest together, maybe Mark's distinctive vision here, is something along the lines of the absurd attitudes that different people had towards the Lord Jesus in this passage. Not everybody had the same attitude towards him, but nobody in this passage has a proper attitude towards him. And in contrast to all of these wrong reactions to Jesus, he stands out as a light. There is one thing that he says here that explains why he is behaving the way he does. And that is the words, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Well, let's look at this then in a little bit more detail. Jesus is interrupted saying to his disciples, rise, let's get going. And again, not to run away, not to avoid the situation, but maybe to have the disciples a little further away or just for them all to go together and meet this arresting band. And while he's still speaking, Judas came and he had a crowd, people sent with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. This may have included some of the temple guard. This may have included volunteers. This may have included the kind of people who were always ready for a little bit of a rabble, who were always eager to join a mob if clubs were going to be involved. Well, this is the multitude who comes. Now, they're coming to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's late. It's probably after midnight by this point. It's dark. There's not a lot of illumination. There are no street lights, you know. And so there was a sign, the sign that Judas, who led them there because he knew that Jesus characteristically went there, so he knew where to find him. And the sign was, I'll kiss the one you need to arrest. Don't worry about anybody else. He's our singular target. Now, what's the attitude of Judas? This is the last time that Judas appears in the Gospel of Mark. 
he appears, he does his betraying, he vanishes. As far as Mark is concerned, we would never know anything more about Judas, what happened to him. We learn something about his regret from the Gospel of Matthew. We learn about his demise from Matthew and from the book of Acts. But Mark doesn't tell us about that. Judas's purpose in the story here is just to allow the multitude to lay violent hands on Jesus. But what is the attitude of Judas? Well, he's made a plan to betray Jesus. So what does that say about his view of his Lord, of the one whom he calls rabbi, teacher? Judas does not consider that he's worthy of loyalty. Judas considers that he's better off with 30 pieces of silver than with Jesus. That's contempt. That's despising, that undervaluing is not a strong enough word. That's the attitude of Judas towards the Lord Jesus. He doesn't matter. It's not important. Money is worth more. He still speaks in a way that sounds good. Rabbi, rabbi. He gives the greeting of friendship, a warm kiss. But what's in his heart? Well, Judas, of course, is a real historical person. This happened. But his name has become a proverb, a byword for hypocrisy. Judas kiss is an expression that we use when somebody acts all friendly, like Shakespeare's the smiler with the knife beneath his cloak. We use those two expressions to speak of people who are hypocrites. Well, that's always painful. That's a betrayal when we encounter it among other people, when those who were supposed to care for us, when those who professed affection and respect for us stab us in the back. But how much worse is it when it's not just to us, to us who are imperfect, to us who do give grounds for offense at least once in a while? How much worse is it when this is the attitude that someone has towards the Lord Jesus. If I can stop here for a word of application, don't be too upset when somebody betrays you and stabs you in the back. They did it to Jesus. That's how people are. It happens. And the Lord Jesus understands the betrayal. He understands how that hurts. So you're not alone when that may happen to you. But that's the attitude of Judas. Jesus is unworthy of loyalty. Jesus is contemptible. Well, here's this crowd with swords, with clubs. What does that say? Well, it says that they're expecting resistance. It says that they're expecting to find a band of desperados who will fight to the last man. When in fact, they're finding one who is bound not by them, but by his obedience to his father to go to the cross and a bunch of lily-livered chickens. But they come expecting resistance. If you want to put it in these terms, it's like the police coming in full riot gear. When you see a bunch of policemen in riot gear, what are you expecting? Well, you're not expecting things to be smooth and no problems. They're not expecting that. So they come with clubs and swords. As soon as they get the signal from Judas, they grab him. And Jesus protests that behavior a little bit. He says, have you come out as against a robber, as against a bandit or an outlaw? 
with swords and clubs. He points out, I was in the temple every day, calmly teaching away. You had plenty of opportunity to seize me, but you did it here at night under cover of darkness with the worst elements of society in tow. Why? Because you needed to? Because they regarded him as a criminal. Now, I don't know how many of them sincerely thought they might get resistance. Obviously, the high priest's servant did have his ear temporarily cut off. I don't know how many of them were sincere in that and how many of them just did that for show, for excitement, for drama. Because if you see a person being frog-marched by heavily guarded men, it's easy to think he must be really dangerous. He must have done something really bad for them to treat him like that. So that could have been sort of a PR move. That could have been to intimidate others from intervening, from trying to help or assist him in any way. And it did work on that front by and large. But I think it also communicates that Judas despised Jesus one way, but these people despised him a different way. Judas despised him by saying he was unworthy of loyalty, These people despised him by completely mischaracterizing him. They made out that he's some sort of dangerous revolutionary. They made out that he's somebody who cannot be trusted, that you can't have him locked up securely enough. And that was ridiculous. That was the opposite of the truth. But that's the justice of this world, isn't it? And that's the response of sinners to Christ. Not everyone has the opportunity to despise him like Jesus. You have to get close to him first before you can despise him like Jesus. But many will regard Christ as subversive, as destructive, as in some way bad for people or bad for society or perhaps a little bit more accurately, bad for their grip on power within their society, bad for what's convenient to them. Well, that's how the high priest thought about it, right? When he told the other members of the council, you don't know anything. It's much more convenient that one man should die for the people and not that all the people should die. By the people, he meant himself and his friends. And he accidentally pronounced a great truth. That was how God worked to bring salvation to his people. One man died in the place of many. But that's not how the high priest Caiaphas meant it. Well... The absurd attitudes are not over with yet. Now, one who followed with them took up a sword to defend the Lord Jesus, but it was a futile gesture. We might feel that there was something commendable in it. At least he didn't go down without a fight. But it still demonstrated a misunderstanding of Christ's mission, even if his heart was in the right place temporarily. He didn't understand the kingdom of God. He didn't understand his Savior. He didn't understand that Jesus was not looking to be defended with weapons. And after that attempt, of course, that disciple, that one who stood by, also scattered, followed at a distance, and wound up denying Christ. The denials will come up later in the passage, of course. But they've already been predicted. 
So there's a little glimmer. Here's somebody who's attached to Jesus. Here's somebody who will stand and fight, even though misguided. But he can't hold out. He can't be consistent. He can't persevere through difficulties. And then you have what I think is sort of the clue to the passage in verse 50. Then they all forsook him and fled. Now, they didn't necessarily flee just when the people arresting arrived. The swords and clubs didn't intimidate them away. But when Jesus said that the scripture must be fulfilled, when Jesus indicated, in other words, that although he protested the injustice, he was nonetheless going to cooperate with the arrest, at that point, they scattered. They forsook him and fled. And I think that language of forsaking is worth noticing and is worth dwelling on for a moment. They continued with him imperfectly, but they continued with him through many trials, through many ups and downs, through many experiences of different kinds. But now at the critical juncture, when the Lord Jesus makes it clear to them that the weapons of his warfare are not carnal, but spiritual, when he makes it clear that he's bound by the scriptures, when he makes it clear that the sword is not the way to defend him, At that point, I imagine their feelings were something like, well, then we don't know what to do. We're going to skedaddle. Because they still didn't understand. It wasn't that their attachment to him was insincere. It was that in the weakness of their faith, in the confusedness of their thinking, they could not remain. They could not persevere when things made so little sense. On the one hand, I guess you could say, I'm speaking in defense of the disciples. And I'm highly motivated to do that because we're all in the same boat, aren't we? We all can scatter. We all can fold under pressure. We all can fail to stand for Christ when we need to. And there are reasons for that. I'm not saying they're legitimate excuses. I'm not saying we don't need to do better. But... The Bible itself makes a big difference between these disciples who scattered, who forsook him and fled in the moment, but who later on came back, versus Judas, who despised Christ, versus the arresting multitude who treated him like a criminal. There is a difference between being too weak to stand as you ought to stand and being part of the problem and contributing to the injustice. So on the one hand, I don't want us to be too hard on the disciples because we're in the same boat. We should avoid hypocrisy of criticizing them for things we also do. But on the other hand, Mark does use the strong language. They forsook him. They fled. They ran away. Jesus is alone. The people who had been saying, we'll go with you. We'll follow you no matter what will never deny you. They forsook him and fled. When push comes to shove, our attachment to Christ can be put under severe strain. And especially because Christ doesn't do things the way that make sense to us. Had Christ said, draw your swords, stand and fight, 
probably they would not have run away. That would have made sense to them. They could have gotten that even if they were outnumbered. But Christ didn't say that. He said the scriptures must be fulfilled. And at that point, that was too much for them. They forsook him and they fled. So Christ is alone. Christ is abandoned because even those who do genuinely care about him are too weak and too ignorant to stand with him the way they need to. Now, why does Mark include this little story about the young man who even left his garment to follow Christ? Well, there are several main theories about that. Some people see an allusion to the book of Amos where it's said that the valiant will flee away naked. There's nothing about this young man to indicate that he was particularly valiant, so I don't, I'm not convinced that that's a legitimate cross-reference. Some people say, well, the key to understanding this is that this is Mark's gospel. None of the others wrote this. This is Mark himself. And there's elaborate historical reconstructions where the Last Supper that Jesus had was held in Mark's house in their upper room. And so Mark woke up, heard the disciples when they were leaving, didn't have time to change out of his pajamas, followed after them to see what was going on. And that's why he's oddly dressed. That's why he's dressed in something that can just be pulled right off like a bathrobe and he keeps going. And so Mark writes himself into his gospel. Who else would even care about this if it weren't the author is that theory. I'm not saying that's not true. Maybe this is Mark and maybe that historical reconstruction is accurate. But I don't think that's why that's in here. I think Mark is emphasizing something a little bit different. And Amos may have passed through his mind at some point. Obviously, he's familiar with the scriptures. So I'm not denying those other theories. But there's a different idea that I like better. You know, in the past, people have said that they would leave everything to follow Christ. And some of his disciples did, in fact, like they left their nets or they left their homes. They left, Matthew left collecting taxes in order to follow Jesus. Here somebody leaves everything in order not to follow Jesus. Think about the contrast with Bartimaeus. You remember the blind man who was sitting at Jericho and who was calling out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And when they started to bring him to Jesus because Jesus stopped his pilgrimage, he waited for the blind man to catch up to him. When he started to go, Bartimaeus cast aside his garment. He cast aside his most valuable possession. Remember, this man is a beggar in order to come to Jesus. Well, here, a young man casts aside the only thing he has in order to get away from Jesus. He runs away naked. Well, what a contrast between leaving all to follow Christ and leaving all to get away from Christ. I think this story is here as a little symbol, as something that happened, but something that happened that was so perfectly illustrative of Mark's point that he had to include it. His point was that people have absurd attitudes towards Jesus. They don't appreciate him. When they try to stand with him, they stand with him in the wrong way. And at this point, Jesus is so isolated. Jesus is so abandoned. Things are so much going against him that one person would leave everything and skedaddle. Now, there's also another point. Matthew Poole makes this one that sometimes 
mob justice is not very targeted or not very accurate. Judas has said, just get him. But now they grab this random young man as well, and so he has to flee and get away. I think that's a legitimate observation to make, but I don't think that's why Mark included it here. Now, the theory I've given my support for just so I don't get accused of plagiarism down the road comes from a commentator named Eugene Boring, who is the opposite of boring in what he writes and the ideas that he comes up with. So what is the impression we get then as we read through Mark and we try to pay attention to what Mark leaves out and what Mark includes? Well, you see Jesus betrayed by one of his closest followers. You see a vague attempt made to defend him that ends in failure, that ends with everybody fleeing. You see the multitude, many people who probably had heard him teaching in the temple, who had been in his presence just a day or two before listening to what he was saying, and now they treat him like he's some kind of terrorist. And you have the disciples who run away from him, even at the cost of leaving their clothes behind. That, of course, would have involved shame and disgrace as well. Here are people embracing shame in order to get away from Jesus, rather than people embracing the shame of being associated with Jesus. Oh, this is a low point for the Lord Jesus. In terms of earthly support, in terms of comfort from other people, this may be his lowest point. At the crucifixion, you know, you can, you can talk about that, but at the crucifixion, standing a long way away, there were some people watching who still had sympathy, who still had care and concern, but not here. He's all alone. Does he flinch? Does he change? Does he draw back? No. He says, the scriptures must be fulfilled. That's the guiding light. That's the principle. The Lord Jesus had poured over the scriptures from the time he was young. He had asked questions about the doctors of law in the temple when he was about 12. He'd been reading. He'd been meditating ever since. He'd been reading aloud in the synagogues. We know that from the Gospel of Luke. And from the scriptures, he had learned that the Messiah had to suffer, had to die. He had learned that the Son of Man was the suffering servant from the book of Isaiah. He had learned that the scripture must be fulfilled from Zechariah that said, smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And so he knew that the scripture would be fulfilled and that judgment would fall on him. He knew that the scripture would be fulfilled and that his followers would be scattered. And so he didn't hold it against them. But he still went through this for their sake and in their place. Well, as I said in the prayer at the beginning, this passage of Scripture exposes to us the darkness that is in our hearts. We're not intrinsically better than Judas. We're not intrinsically better than the mob. Apart from the grace of God, that's where we would stand. And if God's grace has reached us and has transformed us, if we are truly loyal to Christ, are we not often truly loyal but according to our own lights, don't we go around cutting off the high high priest's servant's ear instead of actually doing what Jesus would want us to do? Or then the going gets tough 
and we're nowhere to be found. We're hiding somewhere. We've run away, even at the cost of leaving our garment behind, even at the cost of being embarrassed and disgraced. We need to be more like Jesus. But before we can be more like Jesus, before we can develop more of this character, we need to give thanks. We need to stop and rest in the reality that he was what we needed him to be. We were not what we ought to be. We are not to this day. But Jesus already has been what we need him to be. He fulfilled the scriptures. Amen.